Well, it's my unique privilege to open God's Word again to you this morning. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to settle in for a little bit. This is becoming a little bit of a series within a series. We've been doing a summer series on church health, and the leaves are falling now, so fall is upon us, and what? They're falling in my yard, anyway. uh, I've given over. It's cold. It's starting to get colder. The leaves in my yard are coming down. Anyway, we're in the fall season, and it's time to uh, move forward. We're going to be opening the book of Hebrews soon. But as I explored the chapter, the final chapter in the Summer Health series on spiritual leadership, it caught my attention about the significance of what spiritual leadership really is. And I was very concerned not to just glibly pass it by and brush over what is there. And so when I started to open up 1 Timothy 3, just more and more began to pour out of my heart in terms of my preparation. We probably won't be here forever, but a few weeks nevertheless, because we are going to be, practically speaking, affirming deacons and deaconesses again for another year's round. And it's important for all of us to have discernment regarding qualifications in terms of who should be leading and how we're guided here as a church. That affects both the leader and uh, the women who serve as deaconesses, and it affects the body of Christ as well as we are one body. Also, as I mentioned Last week, when we're talking about spiritual leadership, you can apply this in terms of being a spiritual man or woman, boy or girl. Those who are saved have a spiritual gift. You've been given a gift by God that you need to be prayerfully considering the question, how can I be used within the body of Christ for the glory of God, for the betterment of his people? How can I be part of what makes this church healthy? That's the motivation and that's the goal. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So there are differences, but we all need to use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. So we've been given gifts. And as you think through With me, spiritual leadership, think through the question again. What is God calling me to be going into this fall season here in this local church? We looked at leadership as congregational last time, and I gave kind of a broad brush look at the difference between being a passive consumer who comes to critique, to evaluate, to sort of come as you would come to maybe a health club or or a play, or a movie, or, or come to a restaurant. There are consumers where you evaluate, and you benefit as you evaluate, but you're an evalu- evaluator, a customer. And that's very different than being a body member. A body member is someone who's like a shareholder. I mean, you're, you're someone who is part of what makes this place what it is. You, as one person put it, you can't go to church because the church is you. Well, you, you come as church into a building, but you are the church. You are the assembly of God called to um, respond to leaders, but also to lead within your own sphere of influence with your spiritual 
giftedness. And there's a lot of ways that you spiritually should lead in terms of helping each other with conflict and resolution. We, we confront people. We restore people. We're, we're part of each other's lives. We're called to make disciples. The Great Commission isn't just winning people to Christ. It is, and you've heard this a million times before, but it's important to reiterate, the Great Commission, what Jesus said before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, is to teach all that he had commanded. And so you not only win souls to Christ, people to Christ, we're called to disciple people in the Lord. We're called to grow in grace and do that. And watch this, you were also called to be discipled, to be willing to be taught and be fed. So whether you have a speaking or teaching gift or a serving gift, we're called to be participants together. Now, as I've guided you to 1 Timothy 3, I want to look at my second point here, which is leadership has biblical qualifications. Leadership has biblical qualifications. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Aspiring and desiring to be a spiritual leader is noble. Why would Paul say that? I think he says that because there's an immediate gut check or should be whenever you think, oh, I want to be a leader, especially in God's church. I want to do that. I want to stand up in front of people and either speak or put myself out there. Well, the humility of the gospel tells us we know we're sinners. We know we don't deserve to be in leadership. But Paul wants to, before giving this heavy load of qualifications that would scare most people away from ever entering an office like this, he wants to affirm the aspiration and the desire to go into that office. You see that? He wants to put some wind in the sails before he sobers up the waters And he's saying, listen, to want to do this out of a pure desire, out of a burning desire, Paul telling Timothy, stir up uh, the, the flame in your heart that's within you that was affirmed by the laying on of hands, stoke the fire. That's not a bad thing to want to do that. It's not a bad thing to put yourself out there. It's actually a noble thing. It's a good thing. So he's comforting the leader in that regard. And we're comforted, as we looked at last time, to know that God is the one who ultimately establishes leaders. You can never earn enough respect in the world's eyes to really be affirmed as a spiritual leader. There's not enough credits that you can store up. There's not enough credentials that you can mount up. There's not enough alphabetical letters that you can put after your name to really qualify you to be a true spiritual leader. Spiritual leadership comes by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who raises up people in the church. Acts 20, 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. And we recognize the leaders. As Paul told Titus to appoint leaders on at Crete. There's a recognition of what the Holy Spirit is already doing in the heart of someone as they go forward. So... How does this recognition process take place? 
Well, two things. One, you have to see the desire. As in the body of Christ, if you're going to nominate someone to be a deacon or a deaconess, and I'll just apply First Timothy 3, 4 to the deacon-deaconess role, if someone doesn't want to do it, you really don't want to try to strong-arm somebody into service. You don't want to do that. You want to say, you need to do that. They should want to do that. It's the same thing with eldership pastoring, overseeing, same, same role, same office. They should want to do it. And it's been said that if someone can do anything else but do this, they should do anything else but do this. I mean, you, you, you really should want to be in spiritual leadership, but at the same time, be qualified by these qualifications. And that's the delicate balance. Someone can want to be in leadership, but not be qualified Someone can be qualified for leadership, but not want to be in leadership. And those two things really have to come together in great coalescence. And that's when the Holy Spirit is calling someone to fulfill this role. Let me say this as well. Don't check out of this sermon mini-series because you don't want to be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess. This is really what it means to be like Jesus Christ. And so we should all aspire and desire to be this because these qualifications are the qualifications of being holy. Well, speaking of that, look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's the first qualification. Being above reproach, or your translation might say blameless, it's someone who does not have unaddressed issues in his life. It's not being perfect. It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of a person's life. It's who they are. They are living in a godly way, in a godly path that makes their life irreproachable. It's not open to a charge. It doesn't mean that something hasn't happened before. It just means that it's not left undealt with. It's a person whose character has been graced by the gospel. Being blameless is being graced by the gospel and graced by Christ. You think of Job's life. You think of Joseph's life in the Old Testament. You think of Daniel's life in the Old Testament. You think of John the Baptist's life. These are irreproachable testimonies in Scripture. Ultimately, first, or Titus 1.6, it says, If anyone is above reproach, this can be anyone in terms of being a pastor or elder or overseer. That's a male office, so any one of you men could aspire and desire for this role and could become qualified as you are being graced in the qualifications and pursue these things. It's an overarching qualification. To be blameless, you should think of it as the overarching one that all the other qualifications fill out. So what does it look like to be blameless? Well, it looks like fulfilling all these other qualifications. In another sense, it looks like being like Jesus. And I mentioned this before, the one person who is supremely blameless is Christ on earth. He's blameless in all facets with no question. I think of Christ as beautiful in this way, beautifully blameless. And so that's what the call to spiritual leadership is, is to be like Christ. Well, the next qualification is the husband of one wife, literally a one woman man, first Timothy 3, verse 2. There's several options that you could translate this um, for or apply this as, and people have done it in a lot, of, a lot of different ways. Some people tried to apply it in its sort of ancient context, saying that this is 
um, to say that you couldn't be a polygamist, you couldn't be married to multiple people and be a spiritual leader. Well, that may very well be true, but that's nichifying this qualification, I think, beyond reason with uh, what Paul's intent here is to Timothy and for the church of the ages. Um, It's not just something like, well, in case you're a polygamist, you can't be an elder. I don't think that's what we're talking about. Um, Secondly, some say that this means you could only be married once. So you're only married once, and if you're a pastor or an elder or overseer and your wife dies and that was it, you can't get married again. I don't see that because in one sense, you could also be single and be an elder, I believe, because uh, the, you know, the testimony of Paul writing these words, he it was an apostle, so in that sense, an elder, um, elder qualified man, and he was single, had the gift of singleness. Timothy perhaps was single. Christ, of course, was single. So singleness doesn't seem to be what this is um, forbidding either. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a person who is a one-woman man. It's a mindset of purity. It's someone who is not a ladies' man. He's got a reputation for a single focus on his spouse. Someone who has put away youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2, 22. It's a person who has godliness in their life. Now, Paul turns this on its head as well where he is talking about women and if you'll look at um, 1 Timothy 5, 9, you can see where the same phrase in reverse is used for godly women and the same intent is there. 1 Timothy 5, 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. The wife of one husband. What does that mean? How is that defined? Does that mean if a woman had been married and then the husband dies and then she gets married again and the second husband dies and happens again or whatever, you know, that, that she's not qualified one day to be taken care of by the church? I don't think so. First Timothy 5 is talking about a woman who has had a godly reputation, has lived a godly life. If you look at the context here, she has a reputation of good work. She brought up children. She's shown hospitality. She's washed the feet of the saints. She's cared for the afflicted. She's devoted herself to every good work. This is a person who is worthy of being cared for after she's 60 years of age and has this godly reputation. By contrast, those women who perhaps lost a husband early in life, younger widows, verse 11, those are ones whose passions have drawn them away from Christ. They'll desire to marry. Um, they're, they're at risk of abandoning the faith, verse 13. They learn to be idlers. They go house to house. Not only idlers, but they're gossips. They're busybodies. So what's the remedy for that? You don't put them on a widow's list and care for them and enable them to be idlers and gossips and busybodies. Instead, they should, they should remarry. They should bear children, verse 14. They should learn to manage their households. Why? Because that is a protection of godliness on younger women in that phase of life. And the, it's strong protect, protection. It says, and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. So what's my point? Well, Paul's point is simply this. This is a singular focus that qualifies a person for ministry. A deacon and deaconess, that would apply in that way. And in 1 Timothy 3, to a pastor, elder, overseer. So next 
qualifications. Sober-minded, I'm coupling these or grouping the next three. Sober-minded, self-control, and respectable. What does this mean? In a word, it means being serious. Being serious. To be a spiritual leader means that you are serious. You're sober-minded. Does that mean that you never have fun? Does that mean that you're forbidden to enjoy yourself or have hobbies? No, it just means that fun does not define your life. It does not define who you are. You're a serious person. Leadership is, in essence, being willing to put on the backpack of burden in your life and to carry that backpack for the sake of others, for the glory of God. That's leadership. Spiritual leadership is heavy. It is serious. And it is sober-mindedness. It's being self-controlled. It's being dignified or respectable. It's, willing, it's a willingness to put away the world's banal frivolities. Now, if you look at our, you know, I post, therefore I am culture of uh, media, all of that is a sometimes false portrayal of what the world sells, which is if you're happy or gaining happiness or the happiest person in comparison to other people, then you've made it. And if you're not as happy as the other person that you're comparing yourself to, then you're losing in life. Well, spiritual leadership knows nothing of this. It's the idea of being dignified, 1 Timothy 2.2, dignified in every way. It's showing yourself, Titus 2.7, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, you show integrity and dignity. To be a spiritual leader means that you read boring things sometimes. It means that you're sobered and you, you read dead people who are dead theologians. And that feeds your soul. And you think about Christ a lot. And you think about eternal things a lot. And you read the Bible a lot. And you meditate on scripture a lot. It means that you pray a lot. It means that you care about other people's hearts and burdens a lot. That's spiritual leadership. A good leader is someone who isn't perfect. They make bad decisions and then they correct them. But you're a clear thinker. You see the big picture of life in light of the Bible, in light of God's word. You're a problem solver because of this. You're willing to not only juggle and multitask, but you're willing to and you're able to stop the car, even if you're going 70 miles an hour, stop the car, metaphorically speaking, and pull it over and park and meditate on God's word. In one sense, you're doing a lot and you, you have to be able to multitask. You've got to be able to handle your business. You've got to be able to handle people's lives. You've got to be able to juggle issues. You've got to be spontaneous. You've got to react. This applies to parenting as well. You've got to be able to do that. Then you've got to be able to slow it way down and stop and focus and pray and study. This is the mindset of 2 Timothy 3, 2, 2 through 6, Paul told Timothy, you've got to be an athlete, a farmer, and a soldier. An athlete who competes according to the rules, so you're, you're fastidious in that way. You're driving within your lane. You're swimming in your swim lane. You're not going outside. You're careful. You're a farmer or you're a soldier. You're in a mindset of war. You realize there are real bullets flying around. You're sobered in that. You're You're avoiding civilian pursuits. You're not someone who's encumbered by the world and and 
different things. You're, you're self-sacrificing and you're a hardworking farmer who has to be reminded. You're working so hard that you have to be reminded to eat the first share of your crops. You're working hard. You're someone who is literally anaerobic. If you've ever worked out to the point of being anaerobic where you're, you're living on minimal oxygen and you're sweating hard and you're going and you're thinking, but you're in a singularly focused mindset, just going and going and going for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's often what it takes to lead spiritually. William Hendrickson put it this way. He said, such a person lives deeply. His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses like the pleasures of a drunkard, for instance, but those of the soul. He is filled with spiritual and moral earnestness. He is not given to excess, but is moderate, well-balanced, calm, careful, steady, and sane. Spiritual leadership. Next one, hospitable, hospitable. What does that mean? At first glance, you would think, well, this is just for the feminine. This is for the women. This is for the homemaker, This is not something towards men. Well, to be hospitable is a great feminine quality, but here this is directed to the men. And I want you to let that sink in. Instead of checking out, check in at this point, men, because what does it mean to be hospitable as a leader in your home? Let's talk about male leadership. Literally, it's to be a stranger. It's xenos philo, stranger who loves people. It's loving strangers, rather. A stranger lover. It sounds strange, but anyway. It's loving people who will take you out of your comfort zone. It's inviting someone into your house to share that you wouldn't normally share with. It's creating great vulnerability to do this where others will see your lifestyle, how you live, and how your children are, and how your children respond to you. All of that vulnerability is the ministry of hospitality. It's giving, Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And it's done with the right attitude. It's not just throwing a good party. It's serving on a mission. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without grumbling. It's having a good attitude and it's Being on mission, Job did this. A sojourner is not lodged in the street. I've opened my doors to the traveler. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Listen to this one. 3 John 1 through 4. This is fascinating to me. This is missionary service. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking into the truth. Beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified of your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What is hospitality? Hospitality means you care about missions and missionaries. That's what this is. All of you who are part of the missions committee just sat up and y'all are sitting there going, yeah, that's right, that's right. Because there are people in our church who have this burning passion for the well-being of missionaries, local ones, those who are in Midtown, those who are out of state, missions. 
It's one thing to go on missions. It's another thing to be praying for missionaries, giving towards missions, um, being willing to go and visit missionaries. And third John is an example where John is saying, listen, you cared for who he called strangers. You cared for them. And that is walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's walking in the truth. It's literally giving to people with eternity in view. Jesus said in Luke 14 that you don't just invite people into a dinner bank- banquet that can you know, give you something in return or repay you. It says verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You give with that mindset. That's what you give for. You know, we're beginning the seminary extension this fall, Lord willing. We've already kicked it off. We've got classes going on up in the youth room with the dual screen and multiple campuses and training is happening. And we have a couple of us who are students, but I have understood that there's a couple that's coming in January and they've got a place to stay now, a couple different options for where they can stay. But those who are being trained up who would literally come to our church to participate within our body, to be a part of our body life, to see your gifts on display, to perhaps teach Sunday school, to serve, to to give of their time. They probably won't have any money to give, but they just give their lives and they show up. I mean, this particular couple that is coming for seminary, they are coming where they could go to seminary somewhere else, but they're coming specifically here because they, they hear about our reputation, they know who we are, they're inspired about Alaska, they're not from Alaska, but they want to live here and be with us and serve and give of themselves to be equipped here by us, by the Lord, to then replant themselves somewhere else. I mean, these are people who are already trained from a Christian college, who already have skills, who already have talents and abilities to invest, and then this will be multiplied through the seminary. But it will be multiplied even more by the indelible impression that you make on them as you shower them with love and grace and opportunities and relationships and whatever. That's, that's this kind of ministry. That's hospitality. And it doesn't just have to be seminary students, but it's looking for unique opportunities for people who are passing through to serve them and to give. Next, able to teach, able to teach. The difference between uh, an elder and a deacon in terms of qualifications really can be boiled down in one sense to this qualification. I mean, in one sense, an overseer is someone who has to have spiritual oversight and be able to problem solve and discern and defend um, the church and the truth. In another sense, the, the specific gift that's given to an elder pastor or overseer is someone who is not behind the scenes, serving in quiet ways, though they should, but is someone who can stand up with the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord. It's someone who can study to show themselves approved, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's someone who's fired up to do that. That's an elder. An elder wants to teach. An elder is someone who, like Paul says, woe is me if I do not, what? Preach the gospel. It's someone who in 2 Timothy uh, will respond to 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Now, 
There's a distinction between an elder who has to work a full-time job and an elder who is freed up to study um, throughout the week. I understand that distinction, but at the same time, this qualification is a true one. It's not just an elder is able to pull it off. It's almost a bad translation. Um, One translation is apt to teach, meaning an elder in an instant is equipped to teach. In season, out of season, can preach, pray, or die in a minute. That's an elder. An elder is someone who loves the word of God and wants to communicate to the best of his ability. A communicator of truth. Why? Well, if you look later on in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 15, Paul says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And he describes the church here. He says, which is the church. The church is the household of God. It is the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What does that mean? It means that the church holds the line with truth. It placards the truth. It billboards the truth. It banners the truth. Yes, there are political initiatives that are being voted on right now, right? There are ways that conservatives are trying to hold the line politically. Stances that we're trying to take as a a, a nation that's been deeply influenced by God's word in its moorings. We get that. This community, as the local church, is to be even more overt, even more frontline with the truth and say, perhaps I'll go to prison for standing for the gospel. It's where you say, even though we are in a free country where all religions can be Um, can happen here, can exist here in this country. At the same time, we're saying Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, right? No man can come to the Father but by the narrow road of Christ. And that's the passion um, to, to hold the truth high. And the elders are the ones who guard the truth, though we as all Christians should be guardians of the word of God. Verse three, and you could also say this just by the way, if you, if you look back in our sermon series to my sermon on expository preaching, that's where I talk about that for an hour. So I'm just going to move on and uh, go to verse three, verse three, not being a drunkard, not being a drunkard. This literally means not being addicted to wine. Oinon is the word that's used here. It's the same word of Jesus' first miracle where he turned water into wine. There's good reason to believe that Jesus drank wine. Um, John the Baptist, who had taken a Nazarite vow, would not drink wine. That was a deliberate decision. Here, we're not talking about whether someone actually drinks alcoholic beverages. We're talking about whether someone is addicted to a substance like wine. You can be addicted to all kinds of things, medications and all different kinds of substances. Um, Sometimes medications are very good. And this is not condemning wine or fermented drink per se. It's condemning, though, drunkenness. It's condemning codependency on fermented drink. It's the idea of lingering long by your wine. And it begs this question in the Christian's life. Does something other than the Holy Spirit control you? What controls you? The Holy Spirit or some other kind of substance? That's the issue. 
That's the issue. What controls you? If you look at Ephesians 5, um, 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Play ra- oh, filled. You're either controlled by substance, controlled by wine, or you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this is a daily decision. I just want to make this point. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. If you parallel Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, the outcome of being filled in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the word of God, richly dwelt by the word of God is the exact same overflow. You're, you're exhorting one another. You're filled in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You're making melody in your heart. A spiritual leader is someone who decides daily what they're going to be controlled by. Are you going to be controlled by the world, the world's mindsets, the world's affections, the world's media, the world's attitudes, or are you going to be controlled by the word of God? Is God going to control you? Because the word of God gives handles for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Do you understand that? When you put the Bible in your mind... When you focus and meditate on the scripture, the the spirit of God has something to work with in your mind and in your life to convict you, to guide you, to direct you, to make you who he wants you to be. It's the word of God. You're in one state of mind or another. Ephesians 5, 17, the immediate context says not to be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. And understanding the will of the Lord is understanding the word of God. A lot of people were rationalizing, um, drinking the drunkenness with the pagan identifications of drunkenness, the hot, arid culture, but all of this is a sin. If you're drinking to excess, if you're drinking to drunkenness, if you're drinking to check out, if you're drinking to be deluded, this is not what is the will of God. You think of Noah, how he, after the spiritual success of being rescued through the ark found himself drunk and ultimately um, the curse of Ham, one of his sons who made a mockery of that, um, created the line of the Canaanite people that were against God's people. Genesis 9, 21, Noah, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The Leviticus priests, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire, perhaps because of drunkenness, doesn't say Hophni and Phinehas. They abused their positions in drunkenness, perhaps, at least in immoralities. We're going to talk about that. John the Baptist, I said, took the Nazarite vow. Kings of Israel were said not to drink um, wine or strong drink because they were to be able to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. They were the people of Israel to know the statute, statute spoken of by the Lord. Proverbs 31, 4 um, is where it says kings are not to drink wine lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So there's Really, the issue of being discerning, being clear-headed, that's the, that's, that's the prohibition. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. At the same time, Paul did tell Timothy that he no longer had to drink water only, but to use a little wine for the sake of his stomach and for frequent ailments. So there is some measured amount of um, an allowance to drink. 
But the point is always guarding your mind, always being sober, always being serious. The next grouping here in verse 3, though, look back, is not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. What does this mean? This means basically in a position of leadership, you are not to be violent, you're not to be pugnacious, you're not to assert um, your authority with intimidation or some sort of power play, but in gentleness. What does that mean? It means you don't leverage fear and intimidation to get your way to influence as a leader, but instead you operate by faith. What does that look like? I've got three practical ways to define what it looks like to operate by faith as a Christian. And this would apply in your household, this will apply on the job, this will apply in any leadership situation as a Christian. First of all, you should gut check yourself and say, am I being ruled by God's word? God's word is our guide and rule. Bible verses, this is what guards a person's heart from um, going into a worldly modus operandi. The word of God is what scrutinizes our motivations and our intentions. Uh, The word of God calls us to fight for truth and not fight for ourselves or our own agendas. The word of God becomes the authority in leadership. Turn over in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. You have the same word here for quarrels. You can't be quarrelsome or be a bully. Look at James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels or bullying in the church? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Murder here is just hate. It's hating people. Hate ultimately can lead to murder, but we're talking within a Christian context, probably talking more in terms of the heart of murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's the difference between fighting and quarreling with an agenda to get something and spiritually seeking the Holy Spirit to provide. Well, secondly, not only should God's word be the guide and rule, but um, stay in James 4. The sovereignty of God needs to be in our minds as we lead. To be someone who is gentle, to be someone who's not quarrelsome or violent, you have to think in terms of the sovereignty of God. James four thirteen. come now, today, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Have you ever heard people say almost involuntarily, well, I'll be there, God willing or Lord willing, I'll be there. Now that can become sort of a legalistic phrase to insert, to try to make sure that you're good type thing. And I've seen people do that. However, the spirit of saying God willing, I'll be there, Lord willing, I'll be there. If it is to match with this exhortation that we live by the sovereignty of God, we really can't push an agenda beyond what God wants to See, get done. We can't say, you know what? I really am going to make a killing when I do this or that. I am going to entrepreneurially move the ball down the field in this way or that. We can't assume or presume upon what's going to happen because life's a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. Suddenly, life is over for you and you never know when it's going to end, right? 
That's what God's word says. And having a sovereignty of God mindset gives you the power to lead with gentleness. Thirdly, the glory of God. We should always be consumed with God getting the credit, not us. We should defer credit away from ourselves. A gentle person will do this. Psalm 115, one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. First Corinthians 10, 31, if you, whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. If you're eating and drinking is to the glory of God, then guess what? Everything else that you do in your life should be for God's glory, which comes back to he is sovereign and the word of God is guiding the mindset of a spiritual leader. Someone who is quick to put up their dukes doesn't understand this. They're not gentle. 2 Timothy 2.22, fleeing youthful passions. That phrase actually is talking about the passion to quarrel. If you look at it in its context, Um, Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is spiritual leadership. This is the opposite of what the world brands as leadership. Occasionally, you'll see an unbeliever who operates this way and they typically are operating in a way that is very powerfully lauded and and sought after and people say why did that person become so successful it's because they were behind the scenes they were allowing processes to take place they were shamefaced in terms of their own success they wouldn't take the credit and they were all about their mission That's a common grace application to this, but in the kingdom work, we are to say we want the glory to go to Christ. Next, back to 1 Timothy 3, not a lover of money. You can't be greedy and be a spiritual leader. You can't be consumed with a sinful affection for money. You can't be someone who's involved in mismanagement or misappropriation of funds. There's so many embezzlement scandals that come out on a, on a national level with spiritual leaders. But more common is the subtle accusation that a spiritual leader is consumed with stuff or things. And you can't be consumed with stuff or things or toys and be a spiritual leader. And the key is, again, like the sobriety thing or being sober, it's not that we're only serious to the expense of not having fun. I enjoy things. It's good to enjoy some stuff. I get that. But it's what are you themed by? What is the overarching quality of your life? Stuff or things or Christ? Are you about the material or are you about the spiritual, the invisible, the future? This is the point of Matthew six nineteen. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me give you a tip. If you invest your treasure in heaven, in kingdom stuff, in kingdom work, if you do that, whether here or elsewhere, and you're investing for God's glory, not only does that reveal your heart, it also puts your heart there. You send your heart with missions money. You send your heart here. You send your heart places when you send your money and your resources. You do. You say, well, I'll never see that money again once I give it. And that's a good attitude. Once you give it, you let it go. But something goes with that money. And that's a little piece of your heart when you invest it. 
It's like saying kind things about people or praying for people. It, it invests your heart in that direction. That's the spirit of giving. It's why it's, uh, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your own relatives. 1 Timothy 5.8, we provide for our household. We provide and watch God provide food, clothing, and shelter. Paul was always being um, indicted. He was being um, vilified as someone who was robbing churches. 1 Corinthians 11.8, he was accused of that by the Corinthians. That's why he was a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18, 1 to 3. Called not to pastor for shameful gain. Again, um, what's, what's the real issue of money? The real issue is not the money in and of itself, how much you have or not have, but it's whether you are worshiping it or not. It's how you think about your money. Most often, health Maladies are related to how you're thinking about your money, how much you have and you're afraid to lose or how much you don't have and believe if you had that much, you'd be better off, right? And so our health oftentimes undulates or goes up and down in terms of how we're thinking in terms of our money. The point is to be content, 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Is it saying those who are rich fall into temptation? No, it's those who are passionately consumed with being wealthy. It's where your heart goes that brings the ruin and destruction. It's the love of money. Is the root of all sorts of evil. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall in temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, we'll look at one final qualification um, this morning and we'll finish the rest next time. But he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, First Timothy 3 is making a clear, um, a clear connection between how someone manages their household and how they, ch- they care for the church of God. You can see that in verse 5. One goes with the other. The Puritans actually said that you have to take care of your little church before you can take care of big church. Little church. We're called to be expectant evangelists as parents in the home. You say, I can't guarantee that my child's going to be saved. I get that. But we are called to recognize that we are on a mission to give God's word, to hold the line in terms of truth in the household, to convey to our children that they do not outrank us. And we do this with the word of God. Literally in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, managing your own household, it's the idea of holding your household ruling over them with a seriousness and a gravity, holding them in a posture of subordination. It sounds very strong, but it's hupotasso. It's the idea of saying your children in your home do not outrank you. And the more you parent, the more you understand that there's always that need to make that clear in your home. 
It's the test of all tests. It's the attitude that becomes atmospheric in your home. It's holding the line. Does this mean that your home and your household is going to always be squeaky clean? No, better not. But I will say this, it is the idea that if someone passively checks out and is not willing to do the hard work of parenting in the home to win their children to Christ and to continue to grow with your children, then that is a disqualifier, at least in a present station, if someone is checked out in that way. Titus 1.6 says that children are to be believers in the home. What does that mean? Piston, that Greek word, can either mean actual heart-changed believers or those who are faithful. But the point either way is that they are spiritually led while they're in the home and they're not operating in rank, in subordination. A charge of debauchery or insubordination, Titus 1, 6, that can't be there in the home. If We've got a few minutes, maybe I can push on this. But if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2, we'll end with a Bible story. Uh, It's the difference between Eli and his parenting. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have Hannah and Elkanah and their parenting. Eli was the high priest of Israel and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Eli, though he was a believer, was horribly passive as a father. This, by contrast... Uh, is contrasted very strongly by Hannah's prayer and heart for her son, Samuel. You'll remember Hannah was barren and she ultimately said, if you allow me to have a child, I will dedicate this child to the Lord and, and to the Lord's work. And that's exactly what she did. By contrast, Eli though a believer had two sons who were called First um, Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, worthless men. They were literally, if you look at verse 22, those who would lay with women and were serving while they were serving at the entrance of the tent meeting. It was complete scandal. And Eli was turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to this. I mean, he, he rebuked it, he talked about it, but ultimately he had put his sons in a position of spiritual leadership, probably through nepotism, and just inappropriately putting them there as unbelievers who were untrained and who were working the system back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 13 and following, when Hophni and Phinehas were conducting the ceremonial law sacrifice, they were literally stealing the fat portion that was burned on the altar and taking it for themselves. Verse 15 says, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So before it would be roasted, before it would be sacrificed, hey, give us that fatty portion. Give us, you know, that porter steak right there. You know, that needs to go to the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas here. And, and so you have to do that. Leviticus 3.16, by the way, completely forbids this. It says, all fat is the Lord's. I mean, this, this was for the Lord's sake. This was for God's glory. And they were short-circuiting that process. It's as if they were misappropriating funds and bullying the process and saying, we're taking that for ourselves. All of those disqualifying attributes are on full display with Hophni and Phinehas. 
And they were not only stealing, they were also involved in full immorality. Well, if you go back, let's look at the difference between Eli and his passivity and Hannah and her proactivity. If you look back at 1 Samuel and, and chapter 1, verse 26, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As the Lord, as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. This is part of Hannah's prayer life. This is part of her commitment. She gave her child to God. It's a great picture of what parenting should be. Even if our child lives in our home, our child is not only our own. Our children are lent to the Lord. They're given to God. And the story of Samuel is one where he wasn't a believer right away, even though he was being raised spiritually and practically by Eli in the temple service. It says in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 2, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest, so he was working through what it looked like to be a priest. In First Samuel chapter three, verse seven, it says, "Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him." And the story there in First Samuel three, you have to read later, is where God was literally calling Samuel to service, but I believe calling Samuel to saving faith. And Samuel had an incredible ministry, right? If you look at verse ten. Eli, who was still, though he was passive over his own sons, was still spiritually alert enough to to say, listen, the voice you're hearing, Samuel, in the temple isn't my own voice. It's the Lord's voice. And so when he calls you, you need to say, speak for your servant hears. And that's exactly what Samuel did, verse 10. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears hears. This all created a revival in Israel. It broke the dam and and there was the gushing of God's blessing. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Listen, we don't know what God's going to do with our children. We know God is sovereign over their lives, over their salvation. But we need to believe as expectant evangelists that the word of God and our testimony is going to splash over on these little lives because these people become young adults and they become influential in our world. Think of Paul's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, whose faith dwelt in Timothy. It was a sincere faith that had been passed on to him. Calvin said, the life of the church should never overrun the life of the home. Your children should believe the message that comes from the father's lips. We can't guarantee it. We, you know, we do our best. We trust God. But we can't be passive in terms of our pursuit of holiness personally and giving the word of God. We have to be strengthened by this qualification, not discouraged by it, strengthened by it. 
to pursue holiness in our home, in our own lives, no matter where we are, no matter what our past was, no matter what present looks like, no matter what you think the future's like, we have to dig in and lead in this way. And I want to encourage you, some of these qualifications might be horrifying to you where you say, this list is so discouraging to me. I could never fulfill these kinds of qualifications. And you know what? That's exactly where God wants you to be, right? Humbled under his mighty hand, casting cares upon him, saying, Lord, by your grace alone, make me into a Christ-like example that looks like these things over the rest of my life, right? And then God blesses that kind of heart as we seek to serve him.